Okay, I mentioned Aristotle uh, in his version of that every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I did that so that when I read this scripture text, you'll have a better understanding of exactly where we are in the arc of the story. It comes out of Mark 13, verses 1 through 8. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. I think we just take the story in. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will this be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? And then Jesus began to say to them, Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he. And they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. But this is the beginning of the birth pangs. The way that the story winds its way toward a conclusion is that it's crashing toward an apocalyptic end. It's not hard to catch that. Jesus is looking over the horizon into the future, into the mystery of the future. And if we understand the chronology of this, this particular story, this part of Mark, what we realize is that Jesus speaks these words at the end of Tuesday, three days before his crucifixion. He and his disciples are standing on the Temple Mount. Some of you have been to the Temple Mount. You understand what that looks like. You have a visual of the Temple Mount at the top uh, of the city of Jerusalem, elevated above all other things, is the Temple Mount. The temple was built there, and surrounding the temple were these porticos, almost Roman-type construction. Maybe the Romans got them. Maybe this is just a, a Middle Eastern way of building. But the porticos that lined the Temple Mount, which is several acres, and it's flat, mostly flat, and in the one particular corner of it, the temple had been constructed. It was an amazing, amazing thing. He and his disciples are standing on the Temple Mount. The temple still exists as they're there. It's, of course, been uh, destroyed since then. And they were gazing at the sheer opulence of it. It was a staggeringly beautiful structure. One of the grandest temples ever built. And Jesus and those that were with him were Galileans. They were from the north country up around the Galilee, which meant they were country boys. And they were in the big city. Jerusalem you had to walk up to from most places in the country. It was at the peak. It was at the elevation. And it was incredibly sophisticated there. And for them, its grandeur took their breath away. They did not see architecture like this in their part of the country. 
They marveled at the temple for good reason. It stood majestically on Mount Zion. This is a historic place in both Hebrew and Christian scripture. A tabletop plaza that's still there. You can still walk around on this tabletop um, temple mount. The temple courtyard walls were of white marble that glistened in the, in the bright sunshine. Massive stone columns lined the perimeter of the temple mount. Sometimes teachers would go and sit in in places like that, out in the open air but yet covered, and they would teach local teachers, various kinds of teachers, groups would meet. It was quite the, quite the scene. These massive stone columns held up the porches that surrounded this earthly plateau. The temple itself, straddling Mount Zion, the peak of which is where Abraham prepared to sacrifice Isaac as a sacrifice to God. This is the location of that. In the old days when you visited Jerusalem, you could go under what is now the Muslim uh, worship, uh, and you could go down into the basement and you could see the rock where the sacrifice of Isaac was prepared. The temple mount in its immensity was 37 acres in all, and the temple, covered, the temple itself was over 100 feet. What is that, about eight-story building? 100 feet? Amazing. The walls of the temple were covered with great sheets of gold that nearly blinded visitors. From a distance, the Temple Mount was a brilliant spectacle. Josephus, the first century historian, wrote of a snowy winter scene in which the gold on the temple reflected, here's the quote, reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who tried to look at it were forced to turn away. It seemed in the distance like a mountain covered in snow, for any part not covered in gold was dazzling white. There's a stunning quality to this architecture, this structure in the middle of Israel. And it's not surprising that long after the temple had been destroyed, the rabbis would claim, they would say this, whoever has not seen the temple has never seen a beautiful building in his life. I think they're right. It's staggering how amazing this structure is in the middle of Jewish life. It was the week of Passover when Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem, a time when the city was bloated with religious pilgrims. They came from all over, from every direction. During Passover, it is estimated that the city's population swelled from its usual 25,000 to as many as 125,000. Where do they stay? Where do they eat? Where do they keep their things? Amazing, these little warren of, of little trails throughout the city filled with religious visitors. It must have been mind-boggling, the pilgrims and the priests that were there, the beast and the blood, and lots and lots of money. Just walking the little streets of Jerusalem during this, this festival period. And there they all stood, Jesus and his disciples, 
gaping at the blinding wonder of, of it all and thinking how magnificent it was. When Jesus blurts out these stunning words, not one stone here will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. Um, I think it's quite amazing for me personally to be in a downtown church like this, pretty good-sized building here, uh, in the state capitol. We're just two blocks away from the state capitol, the governor's mansion, and many other really extraordinary buildings here. So you might wonder if this is so hard to imagine Maybe we should elevate that vision and visualize ourselves in our nation's capital, on the mall, surrounded by everything that's there, on a bright, sunny July 4th celebration with hundreds of thousands of visitors. When I was uh, uh, almost to be a senior in high school, I got a phone call from my principal of my high school. I, I didn't know what had finally backed up on me that the principal would call me in the middle of the summer. Uh, but he invited me, this was an invitation, H. Ross Perot took two seniors from every high school, I think in Dallas and Tarrant County, and flew them up for July the 4th, he just put us on one of his planes, and we all went, there were hundreds of us, and we walked around in that, in that area for a day. We didn't stay anywhere. We got off the bus and we started walking until late that night when there was a grand show. Hundreds of thousands of people. I think this is beginning to capture what it was like, looking past the grandeur of it all and this blinding vision and this imagination of the utter desolation of everything. What would it be like for our nation's capital to be flattened to the ground, not one stone sitting on top of another is the way he described it. This absolute destruction of everything significant to their faith. Imagine that being in Washington, D.C. We had a, a near miss on that um, 20 years ago. We begin to understand the fragility of things, even these things that have been with us and marking our lives for such a long time. Jesus looked past the swarm of visitors. He looked past everybody that was there. They were wandering around, and they were talking sort of in, in their small groups. Past these blindingly beautiful, this opulent, stark white temple covered in gold. And Jesus, in prophetic imagination, begins to visualize what it would look like if it were all torn down. No rhyme or reason about it. He doesn't try to explain it politically or religiously. Only this idea that, that the temple and the temple mount would be destroyed in such a way that a, a child might knock over their wooden blocks. Just knock everything over. Only the remembrance of what they had helped to form would be left remaining. The memory of people the memory of the Jewish people. And sure enough, this happened. The disciples were bowled over by what he saw and the absolute clarity in which he described it, and they asked him, 
they couldn't help themselves. When will this happen? And what will be the sign that this is about to take place? These have been the questions for every generation since then who, who stick their toe into apocalyptic thinking, who try to apply their imagination to what that's like, and they try to measure what's going on in this day and time. Is this the day, 2,000 years later, is this the time when Jesus will come back? And will we be ready? Every generation of believers who have lived have heard someone answer that question. And the rest of the people struggle with it. What is this that might happen? And yet the answer has been no over and over and over again. I, I wrote this week in the preparation for worship uh, my experience of having encountered at least two, maybe three different end-time preachers who set a day and set a time. I mean, it's just stunning the way people um, gather people around them. You don't do this alone. You don't think, oh, it's going to happen, and I'll just go sit in my, my trailer park or in my apartment and not tell anybody. Rather, these preachers gather as many people as they can, and they create a stir Here's what Jesus had to say. Direct advice for those who fear that the end is approaching. Beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and he will lead them astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. This is but the beginning of birth pangs. This is Jesus our Lord speaking about something that generationally has happened over and over and over again. There are Christian doomsayers who add to the cultural hysteria with their warnings. And Jesus tells us simply, do not go after them. Do not be terrified. When the sky is falling, when the world is coming to an end, that's right. Do not go after them. Do not be terrified. Don't you hear the comforting words of Jesus that are coming out of the Gospels to us in our own day? When he first appeared to the disciples after the resurrection, he mysteriously appeared. There's two geographical places where the resurrection takes place. One is in Jerusalem and one is up around the Sea of Galilee. Jesus just appears to them. And the very first thing he said to them after the resurrection, peace be with you. Peace. Not chaos, not confusion. Peace. Not fearfulness or trembling. In fact, if you read the post-resurrection stories, the stories that are written in our Gospels to describe what it was like after the resurrection occurred, this is what he says. Peace be to you. It's as if it's his new mantra. It's his greeting. This is called a post-resurrection greeting. I know you're worried. I know you're anxious. Peace be among you. It's like a motto. This is his greeting to the disciples to calm them down. 
Peace be among you. Plus his abiding presence. Jesus soberly warned them that the future would not be safe, however. He pointed to a time that was coming when the children of God would not be safe from evil in the world. Arrest and persecutions were the ways the world announced their opposition to the good news of Jesus' reconciling love. Believers who followed Jesus had to be ready to pick up their cross and die with him. And this did occur. Most of us have known virtually nothing about personal experience, about persecutions. Most of us have never experienced anything remotely like that. But they have come in different times and different places. There are places in the world today where a Christian witness is not safe. I remember when I was working with the CBF, I took a trip to where? Beirut. And we were at the uh, Arab Baptist Theological Seminary, and students and grads from that seminary in Beirut gathered, and there were probably 40 of us, and I began to realize these are the ones who are facing this kind of activity in their community. These are the ones, these are the ministers who are facing this kind of persecution. And there are places in the world today where a Christian witness is just not safe. Asia, Africa, places in the Middle East, sometimes Latin America. Recently, a few years ago, as many as 100,000 churches in America participated in the annual International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. That's for those of us who are in relative safety to come together and to fix our attention upon our sisters and brothers around the world who did not, do not live in such peace, and to pray for them as they suffer for the gospel. This group sees their sisters and brothers who are persecuted as modern-day Christian martyrs, and they remember them in their prayers, as we should as well. The world is not like Jefferson City, Missouri. The world is more like these other places, And could that kind of opposition to the gospel occur here in America where we live and we witness? Perhaps, but more likely the answer is no. It doesn't seem to be, at least anytime soon. There are no looming certainties about that likelihood. Jesus' warning was to be ready to be persecuted for your faith. And there's a long and storied history about the persecuted church. And we shouldn't grow accustomed to the protections that we enjoy. For the first 300 years after the ministry of Jesus, look at world history, this is the way it was. The Christian church suffered tremendously. It suffered in ways that none of us can even imagine. Go into the book of Acts and there is a a brief several-verse description of what was physically done to inflict persecution. It is stunning to read. That made it into the Scriptures. They were hunted like animals. They were brought before various magistrates and kings and challenged to renounce their beliefs in Jesus. And some of them did. Some of them gave it up. But many more clung courageously to their faith, refusing to claim any other name than Jesus. And thus they joined the martyrs of church history. 
It's not always been peaceful. And these martyrs have become the church's heroes by their martyrdom. I have a friend that I've known longer than I've not known him. We went to Baylor together. We went to Southwestern together. We went, uh, did doctoral work uh, and have served the church and been in different churches, but always friends. And he wrote a prayer. I'd like to use it to end this sermon. This is Dr. Larry Bethune from Austin. God in the midst of us, Lord in the heart of the person next to us, Christ in the face of those who need us, let us never be so heavenly minded that we are no earthly good. But help us to see your heaven on earth, to claim it, to help you create it, to love it wherever we find it, to love you whenever we find you, coming to make your home here with us. Amen.